It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. This is the hour of doom. And bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a bastion of benevolence in a belligerent world. With your hosts, Joe Alton, MD. That's and, me. And Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And I'm just some old guy that drools <laughs> on his shoes. Not often. Sits in his rocking chair, falls asleep. Sometimes. Falls <laughs> off his rocking chair. He's off his rocker, ladies and gentlemen. Well, anyhow, we are the reader's choice, doomandbloom.net or doomandbloom.com. Your choice, the reader's choice sourced for both medical education and the best health savings account eligible eligible and the best health savings account eligible medical kits for disaster and other austere settings. If you haven't been listening for the last month or so, or if you haven't been listening or spent the last month on another planet, that is possible. Some people do. Not yet, but they will. Mentally, eventually. They, mentally, they do. Well, everybody wants to escape a little bit. <laughs> I'll say. That's normal. <laughs> well, anyhow, we are changing our format. You're going to be hearing more frequent but shorter shows to go straight to the information you're looking for without a whole lot of housekeeping up front. That's right. We'd still like to keep our medical licenses, though, so i got to tell you that. All information and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones. Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek, that's you, to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Please. Hey, for those who follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or for subscribers on our website, you know we just held a holiday giveaway where we had 22 lucky winners win a 10-foot-long C-Lox hemostatic dressing, retail value over 50 bucks, a must for any medical kit, I say, and a compression dressing from H&H. I want to say congratulations to the winners, and I hope that you guys out there will be sure to subscribe to Doom and Bloom to get our newsletter and access not only to special deals, but also to our giveaways. In the last couple of days, I've read about multiple stabbing incidents one that killed a freshman at a New York college, Barnard College, a woman, and another that killed two young men, and even more seem to pop up in the news pretty much all the time. Any incident like this or any type of man-made or natural disaster can put your people at risk for injury, and when it occurs, the trauma may be minor, it may be major, and penetrating trauma is definitely a possibility, such as stab wounds. They can be life-threatening and they are something that you'll see not unusually, certainly in big city emergency rooms, and I'm sure in survival settings as well. Of course, the, how life-threatening depends a lot on the organs and the blood vessels that are damaged. Stab wounds are a type of penetrating trauma, which is further divided into perforating and non-perforating injuries. A perforating wound is one in which an object causing damage goes in one side of the body and then exits through the other side. That would be, let's say, a bullet wound, a wound from a 223 or a NATO 556. Well, that would be an example of perforating trauma. 
The bullets and other high-speed projectiles cause damage not only from the act of penetration, but also the shock wave produced as the bullet passes through the body. Now, we'll talk about that at some other time, but I want to talk about low-speed projectiles, such as knives. They will not do this, at least. Their concerns are mostly related to the area of entry and the structures located directly in the path of the offending instrument, whether it be a spear, a crossbow bolt, an arrow, or, of course, a knife. Unlike bullet wounds, stab wounds are an example of a non-perforating wound because the projectile causing the damage enters the body, it stays there, or it exits where it entered. But stab wounds, blood loss, and failure of damaged organs are going to be your major issue. Now, a little bit about blood. It carries oxygen to the tissues and organs and removes waste products. It's made up of several components, including red blood cells. These are the cells that carry oxygen to body tissues. White blood cells. These cells work to, among other things, fight infection and disease. Platelets and other clotting factors. These allow blood to coagulate and lessen blood loss due to injury. And they all swim in something called plasma, which is a yellowish liquid in which all these things are suspended. Now, your immediate action upon encountering a victim of a wound with a sharp instrument may save their life. The heart takes less than a minute to pump blood to the entire body. If the circulatory system is breached, well, blood loss becomes life-threatening very quickly. Let's say you have an adult male, about 70 kilograms or uh, maybe 180 pounds. This person is going to have about 9 to 10 pints or about 5 liters of blood in their body. Athletes and those that live at very high altitudes actually have more red blood cells than other people. You can't afford to lose more than about 40% of your total blood volume without needing major resuscitation. To get an idea of how much blood this is, empty a 2 liter bottle of fruit punch or cranberry juice onto the floor. You'll be surprised at how much fluid that represents. The hemorrhage is classified by the American College of Surgeons, of which I'm a fellow, as follows. Class 1 hemorrhage is less or equal to 15% of blood volume. That's about 1.5 pints or 3 quarters of a liter. That's in an average adult male. A person that's donating 1 pint of blood is giving slightly less than 0.5 liters, for example. And at this level, there are almost no signs or symptoms. Some people may feel vaguely faint, but indeed you can donate blood again in just a few weeks if you have donated a pint of blood, for example, at your local blood bank. Class 2 hemorrhage, that's about 15 to 30% of total blood volume. That's 2 to 3 pints, or 1 to 1 and a half liters. The body notices this, and it tries to compensate at this point with, among other things, a faster heartbeat to try to speed oxygen to the tissues, to try to get the red blood cells to go around and around fast enough to get enough blood and oxygen to the tissues. Now, this patient is going to start appearing pale, skin is going to be a little cool, and they may feel weak. Class 3 hemorrhage, well, once you get to that point, you've lost about 30 to 40% of your blood. That's a lot, 3 to 4 pints or 1.5 to 2 liters. At this point, the heart's going to be beating very quickly. It's straining to get enough oxygen to tissues because there's just not enough red blood cells to carry that oxygen. And what happens now is the blood pressure, although might have been a little higher because you were agitated before. Now the blood pressure drops. Smaller blood vessels and extremities begin to constrict to keep the body core circulation going. This patient's going to be confused, pale, and is going to be entering hypovolemic shock. 
That means low blood volume. And in this case, blood transfusion is usually very, very important. Now, once you hit class four hemorrhage, that's more than 40% of your total blood volume, greater than four pints or more than two liters. The heart can no longer maintain the blood pressure and circulation. That's my parrot TD, by the way. Occasionally, TD chimes in with an opinion on what we say. Well, once you hit class four hemorrhage without major resuscitative help, the organs are going to fail and the patient is going to likely be comatose and probably will die if you're in an off-grid setting. If you're attending to an actively bleeding wound from a sharp object, you're going to need a pretty level head and quick action. This is sometimes not as easy as it sounds. Most people not accustomed to dealing with these issues, especially not seeing a lot of blood on a daily basis. They're going to experience a type of paralysis that may waste precious time. If you're in normal times, please contact emergency services immediately. Think about doing that first. But in the meantime, while you're waiting for them, or if they're not going to be coming anytime soon, you need to do a few things. You want to assess the safety of the situation. Whatever happened, you want to make sure there's nobody going around with a knife or shooting people with arrows. You want to make sure that the threat has been abolished. It makes no sense for you to become the next casualty. That is pretty basic information, self-preservation, good idea. You want to put on gloves if you have them. Your hands are full of bacteria and you're going to reduce the risk of infection if you do so. I believe non-litex gloves, things like nitrile, are superior in avoiding allergic reactions. We have an epidemic of latex in this country and so nitrile gloves I think are a lot better. Now you may not be allergic to latex yourself but your victim might be so that's the thing. If no gloves are available at all, well, some people may use plastic bags or at least hand sanitizers or soap. It might be useful if you have to touch the wound with your bare hands. Bottom line is you do have to touch the wound. In that time, I want you to take a quick look and I think you can figure out whether the victim is breathing and get an idea of their mental status and ask them a question, what's your name, where are you, what year is it, You have an idea of how well oriented they are. I want you to clear airways if they're obstructed. This can be done by a chin lift and jaw thrust, just like you learned in CPR. Determine if these people are alert enough to help you by following a, a series of commands. You want to remove clothing carefully so you can fully inspect the wound. There might be other wounds there, may not be just one, and identify any injuries. Make sure that you have a bandage scissors or EMT shears in your medical backpack. If you have a medical kit with you, you certainly need that so that you can evaluate things. Now, the only difference is, however, if you're under fire, if you are under fire or an immediate threat of being injured, well, then forget about the clothes. Just assume that there's a lot of bleeding and you're going to be applying pressure. First, you're going to be applying pressure with some type of dressing even your shirt, if that's what it takes, most non-arterial bleeding will stop with steady pressure to the wound. If the sharp instrument is in place, still in place, and help is on the way, place pressure down on either side towards the blade, either side of the injury towards the blade to prevent it from slipping out. You don't want it to come out until help arrives, certainly, and probably not until you get to the hospital. It may be providing pressure on damaged blood vessels. When I say it, I'm talking about the knife may be providing pressure on a damaged blood vessel. And if you take it out, it may cause more bleeding than if you leave it in. So you want to stabilize the wound in place with dressings in any way you can. 
you have two gauze rolls, you might put one on either side of the knife blade and then use another gauze roll to wrap it in such a fashion so that it's secure or use some kind of pressure dressing to make sure that it's secure. So you can do that. Of course, one dressing may not work. You may need to put additional dressings on top. And if that's the situation, that is what you just got to do. You just keep applying additional dressings on top of the injury until the bleeding is under control. Now, an exception is special blood clotting gauze. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. In that situation, you're going to take out all dressings and then place the blood clotting gauze directly on where the bleeding is occurring. That's something that not a lot of people have in their medical kits. I hope that you do. If not, we certainly have it available at our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Now, if there's no chance of emergency services reaching you long-term, eventually you're going to have to remove the knife. So you don't do this until you're in a controlled situation. In other words, if you were bugging out or if you were at a survival retreat, you would want to take that person to where the bulk of your medical supplies are so that you can deal with things in as controlled a situation with as many medical supplies as you possibly can. Now, people say to elevate the feet above the level of the heart and the head. That's called the shock position. That supposedly increases blood flow to the brain and also helps keep blood in the body core. Now, if the wound is in the abdomen, if the body core is bleeding, well, you may want to bend the legs instead or definitely not want to lift the legs because that will bring more blood into the body core. That's ordinarily a good thing. For abdominal bleeding, probably not so good. So that, by the way, is somewhat controversial. I've read, I've read different opinions on the subject, but still the standard medical websites will give you the, that official opinion. You should elevate the feet above the level of the heart. Now, of course, if you have an injury in an extremity, you want to lift the area above the level of the heart for sure. For example, an arm that's bleeding, you want to make it more difficult to pump blood out of the body. Some people recommend applying additional pressure with your hand, with maybe your other hand, to major arteries above the level of the wound, especially for extremities. These are called pressure points. For example, a major artery called the popliteal artery is found behind the knee. Pressure here might decrease bleeding from a lower leg wound. There's a whole map of pressure points for most parts of the body, but a working knowledge of their locations, well, you need that to be effective. So you need to have some knowledge of that. Now, how about tourniquets? Tourniquets, big aid in stopping bleeding. You want to apply a tourniquet to stop the bleeding. Our experience in Afghanistan and Iraq shows that tourniquets, when used as the first course of action, save lives in cases of severe arterial hemorrhage. And maybe a thousand of our servicemen might have survived if we had used tourniquets earlier in the process. So I want you to consider a tourniquet as a first course of action in any situation where you think that there's any heavy bleeding. Now, if you're transporting a patient to a modern medical facility, if you have that luxury, make sure you always mark a T on the victim's forehead or figure out some other strategy to notify emergency personnel of the location and length of time the tourniquet's been in place. Oh, by the way, for more information and demonstrations on tourniquet use, I want you definitely to visit our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, and see Nurse Amy's many YouTube videos on the principles of tourniquet use and also how to use individual tourniquets appropriately, all the ones that we actually have on our store. So you can learn a lot from her videos. 
In cases of heavy bleeding, the use of special blood clotting dressings such as Quick Clot, Celox, or Kytosam, they're definitely effective. We keep these products in all our medical packs in one form or another, even the individual first aid kits. You want to remove in this circumstance, remember I said, place each bandage on top of the other. In this situation, it's different if you happen to have hemostatic dressings. Remove all the saturated bandages and place the hemostatic gauze directly on the bleeding blood vessel. Apply direct pressure for at least three minutes. And that's something that will stop even life-threatening bleeding with a great deal of effectiveness. It should be noted that the maximum time allotted for hemostatic gauze to remain in place is 24 hours should be removed at that point, if at all possible. You want, of course, secure everything with the pressure dressing, even around the knife if the knife is still in place or the sharp object is still in place. There are various on the market. The Israeli battle dressing, known as the emergency bandage in the U.S., can apply up to about, wow, about 30 pounds of pressure at least they advertise that, if used properly. And there are other bandages that are excellent. The Oleas bandage, O-L-A-E-S, that's excellent. H&H makes a mini compression dressing that is very compact. All of these are useful additions to your kit. You should have maybe more than one. One thing you need to do is, of course, is keep the victim warm. People that are in shock lose heat quickly, so you want to throw a blanket or a coat over them. If help is coming, you want to keep them as still and calm as possible to avoid further bleeding. And, of course, if there's some kind of injury maybe to the cervical spine or you certainly don't want to make that worse. So monitor the breathing of the victim, pulses, mental status. That's something that's important. Now, if the victim's unconscious, you might consider placing them in the recovery position. An unconscious patient should be put in a position that will allow fluid to drain from airways and help them breathe. To place someone in the recovery position, you want to kneel beside the person. You want to straighten their arms and legs. Then you fold the arm closest to you over their chest. And you place the other arm at a right angle to their body. Then you get the leg closest to you and bend the knee. And while supporting the person's head and neck, you gently take the bent knee closest to you and very gently roll the patient away from you. They'll end up on their side. You adjust the upper leg so, so both the hip and knee are bent at right angles. Ensure the person is steady and not going to roll. And of course, you want to tilt the head back, make sure the airways are clear and open. One question we get a lot is if a tourniquet's on, should you loosen it from time to time? You may be tempted to do this, but it can cause further bleeding. I used to suggest this if, if you were in a long-term survival scenario, but it's better to transition from the tourniquet to a hemostatic gauze and a pressure dressing. So you want to have these items in your medical storage and before you remove the tourniquet, you want to have a hemostatic gauze and a pressure bandage in place. Once bleeding is totally under control, of course, your goal long-term is to clean the wound thoroughly, dress it, and keep it clean. Wound closure might be an option in some cases, but most backcountry stab wounds will be dirty and, well, probably should be left open. That'll be the subject of another show. All of this stuff may not be necessary if you practice preventative measures. In other words, don't run with scissors and make sure you use hand protection and other kinds of protective gear whenever possible in any situation where there's a chance that you could have an injury due to a sharp object. That's all we have for today for Amy and for TD Bird. This is Joe Alton thanking you for listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. We hope you'll listen every week. 
You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.